It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 795 for the 3rd of June, 2022. This week, my wife and I decided to eliminate cable television about a year ago. We wanted to save money, but not lose any content. So, did we succeed? In short circuits, Firefox isn't the force it once was, but there are good reasons for every computer user to have the browser installed, even if it's not the primary browser. Cheap thumb drives are everywhere. You'll pay just pennies per gigabyte, but are thumb drives still important? And 20 years ago, only on the website, criminals had figured out how to steal domain registrations and sell them back to the owners. Last August, I described our cord-cutting procedure that had begun in June. My wife and I were a little late to that party, but a huge increase in the cable TV fee had pushed our monthly bill to $216. We've been without cable television for a year now, and maybe you're wondering how it's going. We selected the Internet Service Provider's 500 megabits per second plan at $50 per month, and that has worked out exceedingly well. The speeds are usually at or slightly above what Wide Open West promised. WOW has been acquired by BreezeLine, and the good service, so far, has continued. In television's early days, it was necessary to remember when a program was on. With just two or three channels available, it was pretty easy to find a program, even if you didn't remember which network it was on. Then cable television came along, and perhaps you had to remember the time at which of 100 or more channels a program was on. Today, we have 30 or more over-the-air channels available where I live. It is rare for me to watch any of them. But I didn't watch television much until last year. I mainly used the television to binge-watch old series programs and motion pictures. But I've possibly watched more streaming programs in about 10 months than I'd watched in the previous 5 years. Or 10. Because streaming is on demand, I don't have to remember when a program is on, only which service has it, and which episodes I've already seen. I keep a list of programs that I'm watching or want to watch, including DVDs from the library. Including information about which episodes I've seen is helpful because not all of the streaming services do a good job keeping track of that. Phyllis's viewing hasn't changed a lot. Fubo has everything she used to watch on cable television, such as the Food Network, Bravo, and HGTV. Fubo even includes local channels now, so there's less need to switch between the over-the-air stations using the television's antenna and TV remote control and streaming on Internet television with the Roku remote control. During the week, she watches primarily over-the-air programs. On weekends, it's usually programs on the Food Network and PBS. Unlike me, Phyllis does not binge-watch anything and hasn't investigated programs that are available on the other services. She's also not particularly interested in old motion pictures or old series television programs. She says most ancient TV series weren't that good, ever. And I do have to agree with that, even though I do watch some of them. 
There's no accounting for taste. How satisfactory is the arrangement, and are we really saving any money? Well, let's see. We have the Internet service fee. That's $50 a month. It provides more than just television access, of course. Roku, after buying a streaming stick for each television, there's no monthly cost. Fubo is our primary provider right now. That could change. Most of the services you'd choose as a primary will be about $65 a month. Amazon Prime includes videos, and I allocate part of the annual fee to Prime Video, so let's say $5 a month. I chose Hulu because it offers The Handmaid's Tale and only murders in the building. It's $8 a month, but that includes commercials. We could pay more and eliminate the commercials. There's AMC Plus. It has Orphan Black, Deadwater Fell, The Bureau, The Prisoner. $2 a month for one year, and then it's going to go up to $9 a month. There's YouTube Premium. It is included with my mobile phone plan, so I estimate about $12 a month for that. Netflix, which has The Blacklist, Black Mirror, Travelers, The Queen's Gambit, programs like that, $9 a month. New Amsterdam, Monk, and a bunch of other programs are included on Peacock. It has no monthly fee, but you get commercials and limited access to programs. For about $4, we do get access to all programs, but still the commercials. And HBO Max, which has, among other programs, Doctor Who, DCI Banks, The Mentalist, Harry Potter Films, Bourne Films, and Belle de Jour. That's $12.50 a month without ads. So after the higher fee goes into effect for AMC+, Plus, that comes out to $162 a month versus $216 a month, a savings of just over $650 per year, and access to more entertainment. But, of course, nothing is perfect, and all of this is not without some annoyances. Some of the free streaming services have extraordinary commercial loads. IMDb and Tubi, for example, sometimes show five minutes of video, three minutes of commercials. Besides creating a mess with motion picture continuity, the commercials turn a 90-minute film into a nearly three-hour-long slog. As a result, the free streaming services are my absolute last resort. Sometimes programs that were once included with one service are dropped or fees are added. One of the BBC's longest-running shows, Doctor Who, is an example. Doctor Who premiered in 1963 and ran continuously until 1989, with seven actors playing the Doctor during the 26-year run. All of the episodes that have survived are available on BritBox. Unfortunately, the BBC recycled some of the early tapes, so some episodes were lost. And there have been six more Doctors. The Eighth Doctor appeared only in a television motion picture in 1986, and it appears not to be available for streaming. Many of the episodes of Doctor Who, starting in 2005, the Ninth through Thirteenth Doctors, are available on Amazon Prime Video, but they are no longer included with the subscription. That means you'll have to pay extra for each episode. Fortunately, HBO Max has all of the episodes with Doctors 9 through 12, and the first two seasons with Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor. Because of COVID, Doctor Who had just six programs in 2021 from October through December. Three specials are scheduled for 2022. Eve of the Daleks and Legend of the Sea Devils have already been broadcast and are available for an extra fee on Prime. Legend of the Sea Devils is also included in an AMC Plus subscription.
A still unnamed centenary special will feature Whitaker's regeneration as Shuti Gatwa takes over the role. It's anybody's guess where we'll find that episode. The choice of options for British television can be a little confusing. Doctor Who is a BBC program, so it would seem logical that all of the programs would be carried on BBC America. I have heard some people say that BBC America is a fine service so long as you're not interested in any British television programs. That's not entirely inaccurate. BBC America is included in packages from Sling TV, PlayStation View, and Direct TV Now. Some programs are included with Prime Video, but many of them have fees. Both BritBox and Acorn cost about $6 a month, or a one-time annual payment of $70. BritBox is a joint venture with the BBC and ITV, so it has a wide range of British programs. Acorn includes programs from Australia, Canada, Ireland, and New Zealand, in addition to a good lineup from Britain. There are also some unexpected delights. David Tennant and Michael Sheen, who were perfectly paired as an angel and a demon in Good Omens, return as the primary characters in Staged. They play fictionalized versions of themselves, trying to rehearse a stage play when COVID has shut everything down. There seems to be a lot of ad-libbing in the two-season program and an enormous amount of profanity, so you have been warned. Staged ran on Hulu, but it's no longer available there. Instead, it's now on Pluto TV with commercials. It's better without commercials, of course, but Pluto's load is acceptable. British television has some substantial differences from U.S. television. Television programs in the U.S. strictly avoid what George Carlin called the seven words you can never say on television, and a lot more words for that matter. British television programs don't seem to have to worry about that, at least after nine at night. Likewise, nudity is okay after nine. Martin Clunes, who plays the doctor in Doc Martin, says that any medical procedures used in programs in Britain must be accurately portrayed, which is more restrictive than in the U.S. As a result, Doc Martin has a medical consultant. British television seems not to be particularly squeamish when showing surgical procedures either. Seasons are much shorter on British television, sometimes with just six or eight episodes, and I've noticed a propensity to create two-part programs in series shows. Sorry, I'm rambling uncontrollably again. So the bottom line here, the verdict. Phyllis says it's been a satisfactory transition. I can still see the programs I liked before, and all of that other stuff is there if I get desperate. Adding Fubo to the third television in the house, the one that previously had no cable box, provides cable-like access, and she likes that. The change has been more than satisfactory for me. I've enjoyed some original programming from Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu. I've watched some of the antique television programs, but mainly just a few from any given series. Notable exceptions are the Twilight Zone, MASH, and some Star Trek episodes, both from the original series and Next Generation programs. So less money, even with a bunch of extra services added on, and more choices. So I classify it as a winner. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. 
You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, Firefox is now 100 versions. Web browser Firefox has been around since 2004, and it was almost immediately a hit. By 2011, Firefox had about one-third of the browser market and appeared to be on the path to beat Internet Explorer. Since then, it's been all downhill. Google released Chrome in late 2008 and became the unquestioned leader with nearly two-thirds of the market now, compared to Firefox's 8%, Safari's 10%, but only on macOS computers, and Microsoft Edge's 10%. Those figures represent browser usage on desktop computers. On mobile devices, Safari is the winner with more than half of the market versus Chrome's 40%. Firefox, Opera, and Edge combined have less than 2% on the mobile market. Despite the decline, Firefox still has more than 200 million monthly users. I am one of them, even though Vivaldi, which is based on Chrome, is my primary browser. Firefox has some of the best security and privacy features available, but Android phones come with Chrome already installed. Windows computers come with Edge already installed, and Google does everything possible to convince us all to switch to Chrome. Firefox is the only alternative to Chrome-based browsers. Do we really want Chrome to be the only browser available? Developers such as Vivaldi, Microsoft Edge, Brave, and Opera all add features to the underlying Chrome engine, but the core product is Google's, and Google has a lot of control over what's in there. If Firefox isn't installed on your computer right now, please install it. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the Firefox installer. You don't have to set it as your primary browser, but use it at least occasionally. Monopolies are never good for anybody except the people running the monopoly. So it's important to maintain an alternative. Over the years, I've set a variety of browsers as my default, but I've always returned to Firefox. Vivaldi has been my default browser for quite a long time now, and I like the way it works. But Firefox is the primary browser on my Android phone and on an iPad. Eighteen years ago, several hundred people worked on the initial Firefox release. It blocked pop-ups, improved on the concept of tabbed browsing, and had several worthwhile security features. Safety and security are still key points to Firefox developers. Firefox runs on Windows and Mac OS computers, of course, but also on Linux systems and mobile devices that run Android and iOS. A new HTTPS-only feature attempts to use secure HTTP even if the user doesn't specify it. Many websites offer HTTPS, but not all of them implement it well. TechBiter Worldwide, for example, will switch to HTTPS on any browser even if you don't specify it. Go ahead, type http colon slash slash techbiter.com into your browser. You'll still be connected to https techbiter.com. So Firefox automatically switches to a secure connection if the site has it, even if secure HTTP hasn't been properly implemented. If HTTPS isn't available, you'll see a warning. 
If the warning appears, you can then make an informed decision about whether you want to proceed. No website browser is perfect. None of them ever has been. And I can safely say none of them ever will be. And that includes Firefox. Any browser that provides built-in protective features, such as Firefox's HTTPS only, though, is worth looking at. These days, just about everybody has at least one USB thumb drive but they were both astonishing and expensive just 20 years ago. I wrote about Disk on Key after returning from the 2001 PC Expo in New York City. The drive stored an astonishing 16 megabytes of data. It cost only 70 bucks. A smaller 8 megabyte drive was available for $50. The company that made Disk on Key is no longer in business, and PC Expo's last gasp was in 2002. I thought about this when I looked into a drawer where I store USB thumb drives I've collected over the years. They range from 16 to 64 gigabytes. Even the smallest drive is 1,000 times larger than the amazing $70 16 megabyte drive from 2001. That drawer has almost 20 thumb drives that could store more than 1,040 gigabytes of data. By 2008, I was excited by a 16-gigabyte drive that I could buy for $25. Today, 64-gigabyte drives are available for $10 or less. Micro Center frequently gives away 16-gigabyte drives just to attract customers. I boasted about carrying 6 gigabytes of storage with me in 2008. Today, I carry zero gigabytes of storage with me, even though it would be easy to take a terabyte of storage. Why nothing? Well, times have changed. If I need a file to be available on a mobile device, I can save it to Google Drive or Microsoft's OneDrive. That's how tech works. My employer in the 1980s needed to create CDs for a client. We bought a CD burner for more than $3,000. It required an expensive application to burn disks. The process required more than an hour and failed about as many times as it succeeded. Today's DVD burners cost less than $50, and free applications exist to burn disks. But who uses disks anymore? Applications are either online, or if they're installed on the computer, the installation files are downloaded. Most computers don't come with optical drives now, but Ethernet ports and Wi-Fi are common. Both of those would have been extra cost options around the turn of the century. But to get back to thumb drives for a moment, that 16 megabyte drive in 2001 would hold the contents of about 11 1.4 megabyte floppy disks. Impressive at the time, 11 floppies wouldn't fit in my pocket, but a thumb drive would. Today, that first thumb drive wouldn't hold even a single raw image from a digital camera. And the cost? $4.38 per megabyte seemed like a great deal back then, but compare that to today's 64 gigabyte drives for 10 bucks. That's 4,000 times the storage available on a 16 megabyte thumb drive at one seventh the cost. So about 16 cents per gigabyte, or 16 thousandths of a cent, presuming I got the decimal point in the right place, per megabyte. If you have a spare thumb drive or two hanging around, check in next week. I'll have some suggestions for using them.
The same economies of scale have affected disk drives and even computers. The difference is less visible in computers because the cost has remained relatively static, but what's inside the box has changed greatly. Instead of 640 kilobytes of RAM, many computers now have 32 gigabytes or more. Slow, 10-megabyte mechanical disk drives have been replaced by fast, 1,000-terabyte solid-state drives. Screen sizes and resolutions are far greater, and CPUs in even today's low-end computer rival what was available in supercomputers back then. A co-worker once suggested that a top-of-the-line home computer would always cost about $2,000. And although we do have to omit the really high-end gaming computers, that continues to be remarkably accurate, even today. You won't need a thumb drive or a top-of-the-line computer to read about crooks stealing domain registrations in 2002 and selling them back to the real owners. Read about it in 20 years ago, only on the website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <laughs>